0: Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing, whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. You'll find what you came for here, and more. So ask yourself... What is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. At some point, all of us will shuffle off this mortal coil and join the choir invisible. Doesn't matter who you are, how much money you have, or how famous you might be, in the end, we're all mortal. This really hits home when musicians we love suddenly disappear forever. It's not like we personally knew these people, but because their music helped us know ourselves a little piece of us dies with them. The circumstances of their passings vary. Misadventure, accidents, overdoses, suicide. Some can be explained away while other deaths will forever remain a mystery. With that in mind, let's take a look back on the last hours of some of those musicians who have left us. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and uh, I apologize for the morbid subject matter, but we have a natural curiosity when it comes to death. When a music personality passes on unexpectedly, we're possessed by all kinds of questions. How did this happen? How could it happen? What were the circumstances? It's not that we're necessarily being ghoulish or voyeuristic, but most often we're just looking for a reasonable explanation for what seems to be an unreasonable death. Sometimes a death comes as a complete surprise. Other times we kind of sort of expected it. Whatever the case, we want to know what happened leading up to their passing. Let's start with Sid Vicious, the doomed bass player with the Sex Pistols. When he died on February 2nd, 1979, let's face it, nobody was terribly shocked. He lived a very fast, very hard, very reckless life and was a voracious user of hard drugs. When he died, he was out on bail awaiting trial for the murder of his girlfriend, Nancy Spungin. On February 1, 1979, after 55 days in Rikers Island prison, a completely detoxed Sid was released, and somehow he had managed to find another girlfriend while he was in jail. Her name was Michelle Robinson. To celebrate Sid's freedom, Sid's mom, Anne Beverly, along with some friends, went to Michelle's apartment at 63 Bank Street in New York, where they had a nice spaghetti dinner. There was another visitor that night, an English photographer and dealer named Peter Kodak. Ma Vicious called him over to deliver a little smack for her boy. Sid got a little taste for dessert, but because he was clean, he OD'd. Now, they managed to revive him and put him to bed, but that was the fatal move. Instead of keeping him awake until the dope left his system, they just let him fall asleep. February 2nd, 1979, Groundhog Day. Sid's mom comes in to check on her boy and he's lying in bed next to Michelle. And he was stone cold dead. Apparently, the heroin he took the night before was 99% pure. And since he had detoxed, his body was super vulnerable. As he slept, his heart beat slower and slower, his lungs filled up with fluid, and he died. He was 21 years old. And Sid Vicious, dead of a heroin overdose on February 2nd, 1979. Apparently, the family couldn't find a New York funeral home that would take his body, so he ended up being cremated in New Jersey. His ashes were apparently spread on Nancy Spungen's grave in Philadelphia. Next up is Ian Curtis of Joy Division. Ian died by his own hand on May 18, 1980. He'd been in very poor health, suffering from epileptic seizures that were exacerbated by a crazy cocktail of prescriptions, drinking, illegal drug use, poor diet, late nights, an impending divorce, an affair he was having with a woman from Belgium, worries about money and pressures to keep on performing with the band despite all these problems. The final Joy Division show was held on May 2nd, 1980. During the final song, Ian fainted and went into another grand mal seizure. The decision was made to cancel all shows before the band left for their first ever North American tour in two weeks. There were no seizures during that time, and Ian seemed to be in good spirits. On Thursday, May 15th, 1980, Ian hung out with bass player Peter Hook playing pool in a local pub. The next day, Peter dropped Ian off at his parents' house with instructions to start packing because, well, they were going to have to be on a plane to America the next week. On Saturday the 17th, Ian was supposed to go over to guitarist Barney Sumner's place so they could go water skiing, but for some reason Ian bailed, saying that he wanted to rest up. And besides, there was a really cool movie on TV Saturday night that he wanted to see. That evening, Ian went back to his house at 77 Barton Street in Macclesfield, a part of Manchester. His wife, Deborah, was out, working as a bartender at a wedding reception. She knew he was at the house. In fact, they'd spoken. Ian said he needed some time alone and made Deborah agree that she wouldn't come home until after 10 the next morning. Totally exasperated and not wanting to fight anymore, she said, fine. She spent the night at her parents' house. Once she was gone, Ian sat down to watch his movie, which was a 1977 film entitled Strozek, which follows a musician and former mental patient who travels to the U.S. and is unable to decide between the two women in his life. During the movie, he drank several cups of very strong coffee and chased it all down with a shot of whiskey. Then, with pictures of his wife and baby daughter sitting on the table in front of him, Ian began to write a long note to Deborah. Apparently, he wrote all night. By the time he had finished, the sun was starting to come up. It was the morning of Sunday, May the 18th. Ian went over to the stereo, put on his favorite album, which was The Idiot by Iggy Pop, went out to the garden, got himself a length of rope from the clothesline, and as the sun came up and Iggy sang, Ian hanged himself. It was Deborah who would find him a few hours later. Ian Curtis, dead by suicide on May 18th, 1980, age 23. And the title of that song serves as the epitaph on his gravesite, Love Will Tear Us Apart. Now let's fast forward to the end of March, 1994. It was very apparent to all his family and friends and business associates that Kurt Cobain was in trouble. He'd already attempted suicide once at a hotel in Rome, and people were afraid he'd try it again. On March 25th, 1994... His wife, Courtney Love, gathered a bunch of doctors and friends together at the house in Seattle to try and scare Kurt into dealing with his problems. This group included Courtney, his bandmates Chris Novoselic and Dave Grohl, touring Nirvana guitarist Pat Smear, and members of Nirvana's management and legal team. This intervention lasted for five hours. When it was all over, Kurt seemed convinced, and he flew to L.A. on the 30th to check into a rehab unit known for straightening out strung-out celebrities. Meanwhile, Courtney went off to do more promotion work on her upcoming album, Live Through This. But before Kurt went to L.A., he and his buddy Dylan paid a visit to Stan Baker Sports, a Seattle gun shop. This was March the 30th. Kurt wanted to buy a new gun because the cops took all his old ones. But he couldn't make the purchase because, well, then the police would know. So he gave Dylan the $308.37 to buy a Remington 11 shotgun and a box of shells. Kurt claimed he needed for protection. Kurt went to L.A. and checked into the Exodus Recovery Center that night. He spent two nights, but on the evening of Good Friday, April the 1st, he scaled the six-foot wall in the garden, which was kind of weird since the terms of his stay would have allowed him to just walk out the front door and check himself out. He took a taxi to LAX and flew back to Seattle on Delta Flight 788. By coincidence, sitting next to him in business class was Guns N' Roses bass player Duff McKagan. Duff says that Kurt seemed fine. He even offered Kurt a ride to his house once they landed. But Kurt declined. He signed an autograph or two and then disappeared. And everything that happened afterwards remained shrouded in mystery. We do know that he made it back to his house before 2 a.m. on Saturday, April the 2nd. One of the last people to see him was Callie, the Cobain's former nanny who was looking after the house while everybody was supposed to be in Los Angeles. Kurt, Callie, and Callie's girlfriend had a quick talk at about 6 that morning. Kurt then tried to call Courtney at her hotel in Los Angeles, but she had a do-not-disturb order on her phone, and he couldn't get through. Over the next two days, there were Elvis-like sightings of Kurt around Seattle, at a park, at another house he owned in nearby Carnation, with an unidentified friend, at a dealer's house, at a couple of hotels, at a restaurant, and apparently at a store called Seattle Guns, where he bought a box of 20-gauge shotgun shells then sometime in the early early morning of tuesday april the 5th kurt woke up in his own bed after sleeping in his clothes he turned on mtv but there was nothing interesting on so we turned down the sound and went over to the cd player where he loaded rem's automatic for the people album and let it play we can only imagine part of what came next this is a non-conspiracy version of his death kurt lit up a smoke began to write on a legal-sized notepad the note was addressed to the imaginary friend he'd known since he was a small child. It began, "To Bata." Three cigarettes later, the note was done. He stuck it in the left pocket of the coat he was wearing. Then Kurt fetched the Remington shotgun, also the box of shells, and a cigar box full of heroin out of a secret hiding place. On his way down the hall, he grabbed two towels from the linen closet. He figured that somebody might need them soon. He also stopped at the fridge to get a can of Barks Root Beer. Kurt walked outside to the greenhouse in the backyard, which had a room on the second floor. After another five cigarettes, he pulled out a pen and added a few more lines to the note he had written. When he was done, he stuck the pen through the note and jammed it into a pot of soil. Three shells were loaded into the shotgun. A hundred dollars worth of Mexican black tar heroin was cooked up and loaded into a syringe. He jammed it into his right arm, just above the elbow. And before the full impact of the drug hit his brain he somehow managed to aim and pull the trigger. He had injected so much heroin that he probably never even heard the gun go off. Kurt Cobain and Nirvana with a frighteningly prescient song from 1993. When we return, the last hours of Amy Winehouse... Allison Chain singer Lane Staley and Shannon Hoon of Blind Melon. I call this program The Last Hours of, and it's just like it sounds The Last Hours of some famous musicians. Shannon Hoon should have been having the time of his life. Blind Melon's debut album had gone platinum at least four times over, and the single was a huge hit on both the radio and on the music video channels. There were tours with Neil Young and Lenny Kravitz and the Rolling Stones. He was talented, he was good looking, he was a father with a new baby daughter and money was starting to come in. But Shannon was having issues with drugs and alcohol. There were at least two tries at rehab, facilitated by the band's manager, but nothing seemed to stick. The band did manage to get through the recording of their second album, which they called Soup. And then on September the 19th of 1995, Blind Melon began a projected 18-month tour. Now, this was specifically against the advice of Shannon's drug counselor, he felt that Shannon was just too fragile to handle such an intense road trip. A minder was assigned to him to keep Shannon clean, but that person was dismissed after 28 gigs on the tour. On October the 20th, 1995, the band played a show in Houston. It was disappointing, and Shannon went on an all-night drug binge. Early on October the 21st, the band arrived in New Orleans to play a club show at a place called Tipitina's on Napoleon Avenue. The rest of the group checked into a hotel, but Shannon said that he wanted to go for a walk. There was a call to his girlfriend that lasted 45 minutes, during which time he explained how messed up he was. Around 10 a.m., he went to a place on Canal Street called the Smoothie King for something to eat. While he was there, he apparently spent 45 minutes talking to somebody on a psychic hotline. When he hung up, he went back to the bus instead of checking into the hotel with everybody else. He got undressed and laid down in the bunk of bandmate Christopher Thorne. Two other people were on the bus, both sound techs, both asleep. At 1.30 that afternoon, one of those techs tried to wake Shannon up for a sound check. But Shannon wouldn't wake up. The bus driver called an ambulance while the tour manager started CPR. When EMS arrived, they declared Shannon dead of a heart attack, brought on by a cocaine overdose. He was 28. He's buried in Dayton Cemetery in Dayton, Indiana. And the epitaph is from a Blind Melon song called Change. It reads... I know we can't all stay here forever, so I want to write my words on the face of today. And when you feel like Blind there, Melon with Change Just like with Kurt Cobain, we will never know how Alice Chain singer Lane Staley spent his last hours, because his body was found about two weeks after he died. And when he passed, it really was no surprise. Lane had been a drugged-out mess for years, unable to do much of anything for himself. The Rocket, the Seattle music paper, reportedly had a Lane Staley obituary ready to go since sometime in the middle 90s. In April 1997, Lane moved into a three-bedroom, 1,500-square-foot condo in Seattle's University District. The place cost exactly $262,000. The purchaser was the LaRusta Trust, which was part of the Allison Chains management company. John LaRusta was an alias used by Lane. He didn't want his real name used in any public records. Lane moved in sometime that year. Allison Chains guitarist Jerry Cantrell installed a home recording outfit that Lane used once in a while, but mostly he just painted, watched TV, played video games, and did drugs. Lots and lots of drugs. With nothing happening with their front man, Allison Chains broke up in november nineteen ninety seven. Over the years that followed, Lane deteriorated. In his last years, friends said he looked like an emaciated eighty year old man. He had no teeth, his legs had atrophied, and that made walking and standing hard. In early two thousand two, there were actually attempts to record with Lane, but his singing voice was gone. With no teeth, he had developed a lisp. Meanwhile, Allison Chain's drummer, Sean Kinney, made sure that he checked in on Lane at his condo at least three times a week, just to make sure that everything was okay, or as okay as circumstances allowed. If you called the condo, chances are that Lane wouldn't answer. If you could get to the door, you were probably ignored. Now, Lane did go out occasionally, but that consisted mostly of going to a local bar called The Rainbow, where he'd sit in the back corner, drink, and pass out. He was so withdrawn and so much of a hermit that it wasn't until the accountants in charge of Lane's financial affairs noticed that his bank account hadn't been touched for two weeks that they suspected that something might be wrong. On April 19th, Lane's mom went to the condo with Seattle police. They broke down the door and found Lane, who weighed just 86 pounds. He was dead on the couch. There was a syringe sticking out of his leg, and he had another fully loaded syringe in his hand. The place was littered with drugs, crack pipes, a stash of coke. The medical examiner later said that he'd been there since about April the 5th, the anniversary of when we think Kurt Cobain killed himself. The official cause of death was an overdose of a mix of heroin and cocaine. But it was just a matter of time because his body was in such terrible, terrible shape. Let's go back to the very last song that Lane recorded with Allison Chains. Again, this is from early 2002, And He Has No Teeth. The name of the song? is died I could drop deal, I is all past, yeah. the last ever song recorded by lane staley with his alice and jane's buddies the track is called died amy winehouse was one of those music personalities who died tragically at age 27 Her death was the subject of a documentary in 2015 called Autopsy, The Last Hours of Amy Winehouse. She was a very troubled woman, an alcoholic, bulimic drug addict. She smoked so much crack that she was diagnosed with emphysema in her mid-20s. Her lungs were operating at 70% capacity at best, which is not a good thing for anyone, let alone a singer. She had an irregular heartbeat and a serious nicotine dependency that had her wearing all kinds of nicotine patches. There were also reoccurring chest infections. Amy was living at home in Camden Square, London. On July 20th, 2011, she was joined by her live-in bodyguard, a guy by the name of Andrew Morris, who was supposed to keep an eye on her. Over the next couple of days, he says he observed moderate drinking. Vodka, mostly. Fast forward to the evening of July 22nd, 2011. Amy's final hours were spent in her bedroom watching YouTube videos of herself on her laptop and drinking. A lot. She'd been abstaining, but had hit the bottle pretty hard over a two-week period, but Andrew said she seemed fine, her usual bubbly self. Amy came out at least once to show Andrew a YouTube video of someone she once dated. She was tipsy, but not completely drunk. And that was the last time anybody saw her alive. At 2.30 in the morning of July the 23rd, Andrew looked in on Amy She seemed to be asleep and left her alone. At 10 o'clock that morning, he checked on her again. She was asleep on the bed, looking, again, completely normal. But then when he came back after three that afternoon, she hadn't moved. There were two empty vodka bottles on the floor. She was fully clothed. Something was wrong. At 3.54 p.m., he called an ambulance, but by that time, it was far, far too late. The medical examiner called this a death by misadventure. She drank so much that she passed out, went into respiratory arrest, and fell into a coma. Her blood alcohol level was 0.416, more than five times the legal limit for driving. Basically, she died of alcohol toxicity. Amy Winehouse, who did go to rehab, by the way, but it obviously didn't help. Two more people to look at Chris Cornell and Scott Weiland. The death of Scott Weiland, let's face it, didn't come as much of a surprise. He'd been in and out of rehab and in and out of jail on drug and alcohol offenses for years. He lived his life and conducted his career in total chaos. He'd clean up, then relapse over and over again. Now, it was bad enough when he was with Stone Temple Pilots. But when they kicked him out, it looked like all his support systems were gone. His manic episodes of paranoia and depression took over. In early 2015, rumors were that Wyland was not well. He claimed to have been off drugs for 13 years, but some solo performances seemed to indicate otherwise. After he died, his tour manager said that he saw Scott do coke just so he could drink more. There were other personal problems. His biological father had prostate cancer. His mom, someone he'd been very close to, was also diagnosed with cancer. He'd lost custody of his kids to his second wife, Mary Forsberg. He needed the money. After all the drugs and all the divorces, he was nearly tapped out. Touring was the only way he could earn any income. And his health wasn't good. He was on six prescription drugs. And he had hepatitis C, probably from shooting heroin. In November 2015, his wife, Jamie, went out with Scott on a solo tour, He was drinking heavily, but he promised to get it together when he finally got home. The last time they were together was an American Thanksgiving. On December second, 2015, he and his bassist went out for drinks. Then they went back to the bus. Everything was fine, and everybody left for Minnesota. At around nine in the morning of the third, Scott got up to use the bathroom and then went back to bed. Later that day, the bus rolled to a stop in the parking lot of a Country Inn and Suites in Bloomington, Minnesota, near Minneapolis. Everybody was set to play the Medina Entertainment Center that night, and Scott was still in his room at the back of the bus. A little later, everybody decided that they were going to go for breakfast, but when they knocked on Scott's door, there was no answer. The rule was, if Scott is asleep, leave him alone. Later, everybody went out to the Mall of America, leaving Scott behind in the bus. No big deal here, because this was par for the course with Scott. At some point, Scott's wife got a text from him, but he wouldn't respond when she tried to text him back he wouldn't pick up the phone either. So at 7 o'clock that night, she called the band's tour manager, an ex-marine named Aaron Moeller. Just after 8, Moeller went to the bus. He found Weiland lying in a fetal position in his room, eyes half closed. His body was already stiff. At 8.22 p.m., a 911 call was made about an unresponsive male. By the time they arrived at 8.45, Scott was long, long dead. A variety of drugs were found on the bus: Xanax, anti-bipolar medication, a quantity of sleeping pills, and two bags of coke. An autopsy was ordered and came back a few weeks later. The result was mixed drug toxicity: cocaine, ethanol, which is alcohol, and the amphetamine, MDA. The coroner noted other issues: cardiovascular disease, a history of asthma, and multi-substance dependency. The death was ruled an accident. But the cause of death was very similar to how his brother died in 2007. On December 13, 2015, there was a small funeral at the Hollywood Forever Ceremony attended by friends and family. The location of Scott Weiland's remains are unknown. He was just 48. Stone Temple Pilots and the first song from the first album. That's dead and bloated. The death of the last person on our list came as a real shock. Nobody expected Chris Cornell to die of anything, let alone by his own hand. On May 17, 2017, Soundgarden played a show at the Fox Theater in Detroit. Depending on who you ask, the band was either on fire or that something was off. Cornell's longtime tour manager was part of that second group. He felt that Chris was messed up and struggling to get through the show. The gig ended at around 11 o'clock. By 1130, Chris was back at his hotel room, room 1136 at the MGM Grand, about a half mile from the venue. His bodyguard, Martin Kirsten, was with him. Something was wrong with Chris's laptop, and he wanted Martin to help him out with it. So, as he looked at his computer, Martin gave Chris two Ativan pills. This is an anti-anxiety medication, and Chris did have a prescription for it, so, again, no big deal. Martin left Chris's room at around 11.35. Soon after that, Chris spoke with his wife, Vicky on the phone. She says his speech was slurred. He says, ah, I probably took too much out of it. I'm just tired, he kept saying over and over again. And then he abruptly hung up. This scared Vicki, so she called Martin. He went back to room 11.36 at around 12.15, about 40 minutes after he had last been with Chris. And although he had a key, the door was latched from the inside. He was locked out. He called security, but they told him that they couldn't let him in because he wasn't authorized to enter. At this point, Kirsten had had enough. He kicked the door open. He looked around but couldn't find Chris, but the bathroom door was locked. He kicked that one open too. Inside, Cornell was found laying on the floor, blood running down his mouth and a red exercise band around his neck. The band had been attached to a carboner, which is a type of shackle, And I know you've seen these things. They're the U-shaped latches that have a spring-loaded catch. People use these things to clip stuff to their belt. The carabiner had been jammed tightly into the door frame, leaving indentation marks. Paramedics arrived just before 1 a.m., but it was too late by then. Chris was pronounced dead at 1.30, and the police ruled a suicide by hanging. None of this made sense. What happened in those 40 minutes between when his bodyguard saw Chris and when he had to break down the door? Part of that time was spent on the phone with Vicky. What happened in the few short minutes after he abruptly hung up? Chris didn't have any record of being suicidal. When the toxicology report came back, they found the Ativan, four doses of it, which is a lot, but less than cases where Ativan has been implicated in a death. They found pseudoephedrine, which is a common over-the-counter decongestant, butylbital, which is a sedative and a strong painkiller, some caffeine apparently from some no-dose tablets he had taken and narcan which was probably given to him by the paramedics thinking that they were responding to an opioid overdose some sources also say that barbiturates were found but that probably refers to the betalbutal because that's what it is they did find broken ribs but those broken ribs were probably caused by the EMS people as they were giving him chest compressions none of this changes what happened to chris he committed suicide by hanging but why Did the drugs contribute to some kind of altered mental state that prompted a very terrible decision in the spur of the moment? His wife thinks so, but we'll never know. nobody likes to talk about this stuff, this business about people dying tragically. But like I said at the beginning, it's natural for us to deal with our shock and sadness by looking for some kind of reasonable explanation for what appears to be a very unreasonable event. But even knowing what happened doesn't change the outcome. It may, though, sometimes help us move on. My email is alan at alancross.ca, and I will answer if you write. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross.